Good morning, I'm Carola and I'll be reading from the Blue Bible, which if you have one, we're on page uh, 1118, I had a moment there, 1118, for chapter 23, verse 6 to 24. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and to the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Well, good morning, everyone. Do keep the conversation going over coffee and morning tea afterwards. Great that you're here with us today. We get to open the Bible together and explore this incredible uh, narrative we just heard. Do have the talk outline uh, with you. You can get it online or at the back. It's very helpful to follow along. 
Have you ever had one of those moments in life when you look back over a season or a period of time where you are today and you marvel and you wonder at how God has led you to that very point? Maybe through a series of random events, job interviews, conversations, missing the bus, being late to something, early to something, forgetting details or just being there. If I think about how God led me and the family to Trinity Church Golden Grove, it was full of twists and turns that I hadn't a clue how they were all working together. But in the big tapestry of God's agenda, he was weaving it all together for his purpose. I'm sure you can think of many times in your life when that such things like that has happened. Well, today, in Acts chapter 21 and all the way to 23, and we just read a, a slither in the middle of that, but that whole three chapters, Paul, the key player, is having one of those moments in his life. It's showing us in these chapters what it looks like to know God on the ground, in real life, and all the situations that we are in, so we can have confidence in God's working based upon real-life, credible examples. And while, of course, the situation Paul is in that we read is very different to you and me, the God behind these events is our God as well. Now, last week we were in a place called Corinth, and today we're in Jerusalem. So, let me recap. How do we get from Corinth to Jerusalem to Paul standing before a council? It's what Sanhedrin means. It means council with a bunch of angry Jewish people in front of him, Romans with spears behind him, and everything in between. Well, firstly, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is confident the Holy Spirit wants him to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, only that there'll be persecution when he gets there. Then in Acts 21, he's given a little bit more clarity on this. The Holy Spirit says that the leaders of Jerusalem will bind him up and hand him over to the, the Greeks. Then he arrives in Jerusalem on a boat. And it goes really well, actually. He's not in change yet. He reports to the, the Christians in Jerusalem. All that God has been doing, how about God's grace, has saved so many people. And in Acts 21, verse 20, they praise God for his grace and kindness. However, Paul's been interacting. Now, he's a Jew. He's been interacting with lots of Greeks and Gentiles the last few years. The church decides that what, what we need to do is to act wisely to help repair the Jew-Gentile relationships. And so they set out with good intentions. Paul takes a vow, purification vow, to show that he's not actually broken Jewish law. To do that, he has to go to the Jewish temple. Now, Paul's a Jew, so he can go in. He's allowed to. However, Paul has lots of Gentile Greek friends, and, and some folks saw him with some Greek friends earlier in the day. They get one plus one and think it's three and imagine that Paul has taken these non-Jewish folks into the temple. Now that's not allowed at all. So much so that for the last 200 years, uh, many Greeks have violently forced their way into the temple, committed horrible atrocities just to see what's in there. It's a very culture-sensitive, very pressurized hot pot for have a Greek going near the Jewish temple. They think Paul's taken people in. And, and then we pick up the story in Acts today, and it reads more like an episode of Game of Thrones or something than, than what you normally get. 
there is violence and anger. There are officials that get involved. There's threats. There's shouting. Um, by chapter 23, Paul's standing in front of this council, the highest council in Jerusalem, needing to defend his actions. His life's on the line. He gets midway through his defense. And then they're so divided over what he says that the, the Romans have to come in by force to take him away back to the barracks, else he's going to be killed. And then this deliciously evil plot happens of 40 men, so we're not going to eat or drink until we've killed him. Then the nephew of Paul overhears it. Paul gets whisked off to another place called Caesarea, uh, which is a, city, a, a town on the coast. It's his whirlwind of activity. Yet through all of this, God has led Paul to the very place where he said he would, into Jerusalem and then on to Rome. You know, being in the middle of God's will does bring challenges, but there's really no better place to be, right? Now, before we explore the details of this narrative, let's just take a step back. What we see today is a clear example of what we would say is compatibilism. What does that word mean? Well, if you don't remember it, that's fine. But we believe that God works in and through people. We believe God is not an imposing force, unnatural to us, that forces us into a corner. We believe that we make real decisions, that we're morally accountable to God for our real decisions that we make. We also believe that God foreknows and knows all things and plans all things. Compatibilism means absolute sovereignty of God is compatible with human significance, real choices. It's affirming that God actively sees and knows and makes all the necessary arrangements to accomplish his purpose in the world before it happens in real time, using people who make real decisions. And if you read Acts 21 to 23, notice how the story clues, on this, clues us in on how it works. Often in the Bible, the, the narrative's unpack some of the tricky theological things as a story to help us make sense of it. And notice how the whole time, big picture, as Tom shared, the mission of the risen King Jesus cannot be stopped. So Paul finds the right ship to go to Jerusalem. He just finds it. There's a group decision to take a vow. There's an assumption that wasn't correct. The timing when Paul gets to speak to a Roman commander, there's a misunderstanding as well that he's not an Egyptian rebel. Paul then perceives a difference in the Sanhedrin. There's two different groups. Paul's nephew overhears a plot to kill Paul. There's a letter written to a guy called Claudius, who's the king of the region, to protect Paul. And in all of these events, God's will is unfolded as people make real decisions. They think, they act, they decide the situations happening in front of them. But God already knew this. He had a prophecy that Paul was going to Jerusalem and Rome. This whole idea is, is also called providence. It's the idea, and when you think about it, it tests whether or not your knowledge of God's practical. Why? Because understanding God working this way is the way we see and understand God's hand in our life. A summary of this is so helpful from the Heidelberg Catechism. It says the question, what advantage is it to know that God has created and sustains all things and upholds all things? Why? That we might be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and in all things, whatever might befall us, we'll place our firm confidence and trust in our faithful God and Father, 
that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creation is in his hands, and without nothing can move. Remember too, another big picture, God is, uh, Paul is here because God's heart is to seek and save the lost. And in what looks like a series of random, unfortunate events is God's method of bringing people to himself because Paul is in this place to share and testify about the resurrection of Jesus. Now at this point, if you are here today and you are, you are not confident in this God we've been singing about and remembering and talking of, I, first of all, I'm so glad you are here. But secondly, maybe... I could ask you a question. In all that's happened in your life, up until today, you're here. You've just heard about how God decrees all things. You've heard about the resurrection of Jesus. And I wonder, maybe God is causing things in your life to awaken you to his kindness in Jesus. Maybe what you thought is just random luck or chance or bad luck or a series of unfortunate events is actually God working to bring you to something bigger. Maybe God's closer than you imagined, but you haven't quite yet noticed him. Therefore, today, would you consider and hear the good news of the resurrection of Jesus? And maybe you too would give your life to him. And if you do know this Jesus, and I don't know many of you do, may you be encouraged with patience and confident hope in your God and all you face, because while you may have seen God's hand in the past, he's, he's still working out his wonderful will now for you. He hasn't forgotten. You don't get to be 35 or 55 and God says, I'm sorry, I've had enough of you now. God doesn't do that. The big idea is that God can be trusted to look after his world and his people as we proclaim the gospel. So big picture aside, let's pick up the story now as we run through this passage. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 6. As I said, Sanhedrin means council in Jerusalem. It made up of two key groups of people and religious teachers, Pharisees and Sadducees. The difference, as verse 8 says, is that the Sadducees said there's no resurrection. There's no angels, no spirits either. And the Pharisees believe in all them. So a big difference between the two groups. Paul stems, as he says, from the tradition of the Pharisees. Therefore, he believes in the resurrection but he's not just a Jew anymore, he's also a Christian, a follower of the way, as it was known then. He not only believes the resurrection of the dead, but in Jesus as the one who rose first from the dead. He believes in a bodily resurrection to life when Jesus returns and makes all things new. The resurrection is the concrete hope that God is going to renew the world and people back to himself. And so central is that hope that if you don't believe, if we don't believe in the physical, real-life resurrection of Jesus, we cannot have hope in God. Which is why Paul gets to this as a straight idea, first idea. He says, I stand on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, the issue is a theological one here, but it always is. Even today, if you press it down, it's the same. Many people are happy to believe in Jesus as a real person. He was a good man. He lived a good life. He died a tragic death. But beyond that, to believe he was divine or the son of God, that his death atoned for your sin, that his death turned away the wrath of God, as we sang in some of those songs this morning, who then physically rose with a new body, that's hard to believe. I get that. 
But hearing about Jesus risen is the call to believe in God. It becomes an issue of faith and of trust. And this is why the debate gets so heated. The Pharisees in verse 9 say, what if a spiritual angel has spoken to him? That, that's possible. They have the capacity to believe in that. But they missed out the who. You see, Christianity invites you to a concrete resurrection hope, not just the realm of possibility. Now that point, the commander is afraid Paul will be killed, so he goes and takes him away back to the barracks. Paul has testified about the resurrection. Yet for all his boldness, he's a little shaken up. Paul is human, he gets discouraged. He genuinely wants his Jewish people to believe in Jesus and it was hard for him to see them reject their hope. But look at what God does in verse 11. The Lord stood near Paul. See, not only does God know Paul's situation, but he's present and near. And he can be present and near because he's risen to new life. It is too much to expect comfort and courage from a dead God. But not if Jesus was resurrected. But notice how he is present. He's present as Lord. And while you and me will be in different situations, we will be no less supported because Paul is not exceptional. Jesus stands near us too. And then what does the present Lord say to Paul? Well, he reminds him he's in the middle of God's purpose and encourages him to keep going. Take courage, he says. Now that call to take courage comes from God's sovereignty, not Paul's inner gut or grit. He's to take courage because God is at work in this. Take courage because of God's providence. Take courage is the call to look to God with the eyes of faith that God reigns. He works in all things for his glory and Paul's good. Take courage in that. Take courage is not the call to find your best life now, but to find the God of resurrection hope. The confidence Paul has and you and me can have comes from the gospel that we put our faith and trust in in all situations. Because God reigns in all places. He is the God of all places, you see. And he bends down to a discouraged Paul who had a moment of boldness and says, I've got it. I've got a bigger agenda in this world and I'm working it through you. So this divine injection of courage. And then he gives Paul this divine must. You must go to Rome, he says. You must go to Rome. Now at this point in the story, we're left wondering, well, how? I mean, if God's so confident, how are you going to get from a, a prison cell in Jerusalem all the way to Rome? And the narrative's drawn us in. And at that point, we're looking, how is God going to do it? So divine anticipation. And it happens in a bizarre, random, or seemingly random way. Because from verse 12 to 24, six times we're told a plot is made against Paul. Forty people went in ambush to kill him, not eating or drinking until uh, they get him. I do wonder what happened to them because it doesn't work. Um, why doesn't their plan work? Well, it happens from the most unlikely avenue in the most unlikely of people that we know nothing about in the rest of the Bible. Paul's nephew overhears the plot. And every detail, every thought, every action, every movement, totally independent by those real people involved, is orchestrated by God himself. When Paul hears this, he uses wisdom and wits to ask the centurion to take him to the commander. The commander hears of this, he realizes how serious it is. And he gets 400 soldiers at 9 o'clock that night to take Paul out of there. 
And in God's kindness, Paul leaves Jerusalem under Roman protection and begins moving along to Rome itself to appear before Governor Felix, King Agrippa, and finally getting to Rome. The mission of the risen King Jesus cannot be stopped. Therefore, in light of that, let me give us two considerations to think through. Firstly, God uses seriously flawed people to achieve his purpose. God uses seriously flawed people to achieve his purpose. So often in the biblical story, we don't see perfect people doing amazing things from a place of pure motives. There are moments, for sure, but the Bible is far more honest about how divided and sinful and unsure we are as people. You know, the thing is, God is not waiting for perfect people. He waited for the perfect person. God is not avoiding evil nations or only working with kind agendas and wonderful to-do lists to get his will done. The story of the Bible is that in spite of your best attempts and our best attempts, evil and deceptive agendas that we often have, God still works. And he still does today. And he can do that not endorsing sin or sinning himself, but directing it to his purpose. And if you stop and reflect, that's a great way to give praise because I'm so thankful because my heart is often so divided as well. And if you'd like a really great example of this, how it works, what's the, the pinnacle of evil for good, that sort of thing, well, you just have to look at the cross when the second member of the Trinity was crucified by men. Yet, ever since Genesis 3.15, it was the will of God to crush him so that all creation can live with the resurrection hope. Just go back to the beginning of Acts, for example. Chapter 2, Peter says, Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold upon him. As you look over your life today, may you know that the crucified and risen Jesus is with you, is near you, understands all the complexities of a tricky world, but that he's gone through death for you and with you so you can trust your God to keep his word because Jesus is the hope we've been waiting for. And we know that because he rose from the dead. Which means... God's people can have confidence in God's purpose. God's people can have confidence in God's purpose. In 2311, God's promise is clear. You'll get to Rome. And then for the rest of Acts, we see how it happens. It's not chance or luck that gets Paul to where he's going. Proverbs 19:21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but the Lord's purpose prevails. You know, it's easy to forget day by day that God is sovereign And we make our plans as if we control our life. James, the brother of Jesus, once said, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. But when you think this way, it helps us not to give up, you see. It cautions us against operating as if we will will rule the world and our life. But compatibilism, providence, God's sovereignty, gives us this calm confidence and godly courage to keep going with the right perspective. Do you know, a few years before found himself in this situation, he wrote to the Corinthian church. 
And he reflected on his life and the difficulties that he'd gone through all along the way. And you can read about it in the book of 2 Corinthians. You can read what happened to Paul. And he says in chapter 4, I've been hard-pressed on every side. I've been perplexed. I've been persecuted. I've been struck down. I've had situations where I face death. Later on, he says, I've gone hungry. I've been under attack from people that, I, that know me and don't know me and, and animals and everything. And he reflects on his life. And he says, you know, I've been hard pushed but never crushed. I've, I've never really been full of despair. I've never been abandoned. I've never been destroyed. I've never not been without hope and all those things. Why? How? He says, Christianity is in the absence of trials. It's facing trials with a perspective of the resurrection. So in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we do not focus on what is seen but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Therefore, take courage in the resurrection, Jesus, because you can trust God to keep his word in all the places you're in. And that's Acts chapter 23. Let's pray. Our Father, wonderful God, you rule and control all things. And in your wonderful will and, and purpose, Jesus was crushed to death, yet risen to new life, so we can know you, the God over all things. Therefore, rule our life. Thank you for the calm confidence that you bring to all situations. May we know that, trusting in your goodness and grace this morning and also the rest of our week. As things happen, help us to have the reminder and the confidence that because Jesus is resurrected, you keep your word. As we saw in the narrative today, you can be trusted. So once again, we hand our life to you for your glory and our good. Amen.